0: You're listening to the news on RTHK.
1: The weak global economy. The volatility and the upswings and the moods sort of a deflationary
2: phenomenon again. Money for nothing.
3: Good morning and welcome to the Wednesday, 11th of February edition of Money for Nothing, and I'm your host Richard Harris. Your business headlines for the day: A new reform movement emerges in India. Prime Minister Modi and his BJP party gets a hiding in the daily local elections, casting a shadow over his economic reform plans. Meetings, blasted meetings. Today sees an emergency meeting with European finance ministers, with the Germans already talking down chances of a settlement. And China's inflation rose at the slowest for five years, rising only 0.8% last year, with factory gate prices down 4.8%. And in other news, Shanghai stock purchases through the Stock index passed the 100 billion yuan mark. Apple is now the world's largest company by stock market value and now became the first company to top 700 billion US dollars yesterday. And if you can't remember your passwords, then blogger Mark Burnett might be able to help you. He's just published a list of the 10 million most used passwords that he acquired from stolen passwords published on the internet. If you want to listen again to this or any other stories, you can find all of our podcasts on the RTHK Radio 3 website. Right, today we have a mix of financial and industry news with our markets commentator, Michael Every of Dutch Bank Rubber Bank. Then we go from a specialist in securities, which is more usual on this program, to a specialist in security. John Bruce of the risk management firm Hill & Associates will be telling us how to keep you and your company safe. Michael Burley of the Langton Shipping Group will be running through the shipping industry and what it's telling us about the economy. And I'm delighted to introduce our guest host this morning, who's Connie Bolland of Economic Research Analysis. Connie's one of the most experienced economists in Hong Kong, and she's independent, which we like because she can say what she likes. Good morning, Connie.
4: Good morning, Richard.
3: Uh, Connie, I asked this question to Enzio yesterday, so I'm going to ask you as well. Do you think the euro is going to break up?
4: Well, I think unlikely at the moment, and the consequences will be too dire. And, you know, um, even the Greeks, I don't think they know that this is an option uh, to leave the euro Euro eurozone. But I do expect the euro to go down further from here and maybe parity at one point.
3: So still bullish on the dollar? Uh, I'm, I'm afraid so, yes. <laughs> Dollar's been pushing everything else up. Well, back to news. The people who promised change are now being usurped by the new people who promised change. India's Prime Minister Nahendra Modi and his BJP party were trounced in the daily local elections by the Common Man Party, led by a former taxman with a crusade against corruption. Mirali Krishman, a Delhi-based journalist, spoke to the BBC.
4: But what the electorate in New Delhi has seen is that many of the promises he has held out in the general election, he's not been able to deliver. The fact is he's promised good governance in New Delhi. That hasn't happened in terms of saying that he would get, he, he would come with good subsidized water, electricity, and also trying to provide good Wi-Fi connections. This is the capital of, of India, and he's not been able to deliver that. And, he, and, and that's why the electorate believes that a person like... Arvind Kejriwal, who who, who, sort of, who who spearheaded this campaign, will be able to, was, was perhaps more humble in his approach.
3: Well, a vote puts some doubt on the reform packages already mentioned by Prime Minister Modi and taken a heart by the markets, which have risen 40% in the last year. More on that later from our guests. We go into another round of meetings today where the finance ministers of Europe sit down in an emergency meeting to talk about the crisis in Greece. Already, German finance minister Wolfgang Schaubler is pouring cold water on the talk, saying there are no plans to discuss a new accord or to give Greece more time. Schaubler actually said it's over, if the Greeks don't agree, while the German member of the European Central Bank, Jens Widmann, said that the Greek proposals were a non-starter. The first Greek repayment of its debt package is due at the end of the month, and currently their bond yields are trading at just under 20%. The euro stocks rose 1% yesterday to end at 3,383. My old friend Brian Torov, JM Finn, reviews the day.
0: Well, it's been a fairly soft day, but it started to recover quite late because there were stories emerging that maybe there is going to be a a deal, some sort of accommodation with Greece over its indebtedness. Now, it was a fairly difficult weekend because, of course, we had the Prime Minister using a great deal of rhetoric, uh, basically saying he's not going to back down on his promises, and yet uh, some fairly tough talk from Angela Merkel in Washington and uh, it looked as though the two were a long way apart well there are only rumours at the moment as far as I'm aware but it seems as though maybe, maybe some sort of deal can be accommodated and that was enough to get markets moving up again
3: Well in New York the markets ticked up 0.8% with plenty of green across the board after the Apple news and good figures from Coca-Cola settled nerves The S&P rose 1.1% to 2,069 just within a percent of its all-time high the Hong Kong will open this morning at 24,528, having risen a miserable seven points yesterday. Chinese stocks in Shanghai, however, rose 1.5% to 3,142. The market seemed to be relatively unaffected by China's low inflation figures, uh, which showed that inflation only rose by 0.8% last year. Factory gate prices saw deflation falling by 4.3% last year. Jing Ulrich of J.P. Morgan gives us a view.
4: This is a reflection that commodity prices clearly have fallen, oil prices have fallen, but also domestic demand uh, clearly is weakening. So uh, at the CPI level, even though we're not quite yet in deflationary territory, we're getting quite close to deflation. Remember, when deflation sets in for consumers, their behavior begins to change. They begin to postpone their purchases. Then the economy could actually take a toll.
3: Well, currencies were largely unchanged yesterday. The euro is uh, currently at uh, $1.13, The yen's at one hundred and nineteen and a half. And sterling is printing one fifty-two sixty to the pound. The Hong Kong dollar's trading at eleven eighty-three to the pound and six dollars and two cents to the Australian dollar. Gold was unmoved at twelve thirty-three, but Brent crude fell two percent to fifty-seven dollars and twelve cents. Now at 8.10, we're going to move over to Michael Every, who's Head of Markets Research at Asia Pacific at Rabobank and is a regular market commentator on Money for Nothing. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Well, Michael, let's start with these, this India story. Um, do you think these Delhi local elections are a sign of things to come?
0: Um, I think India is such a vast country with such a diverse political backdrop that we can't take one election and project that out over the whole country. Um, I think obviously it's a warning shot, you know, across the bowels for the government that they do need to press ahead with actually delivering what they've promised. And I think uh, a lot of people have been saying that in various different fora for a long time. But I don't think in any way is it going to destabilize them or actually prevent them moving ahead with doing what they want to do.
3: So I don't know if you share the general bullish view on India, but it sounds as if this really isn't going to change things very much.
0: Well, I have to say, I'm renowned as quite a bear on nearly every major market and economy, but India is one where I am actually bullish. Obviously, it's moved a very long way, very rapidly. But if you look at the low base they're starting from and the very ambitious reforms they're trying to push ahead with, I think there's a lot of room for optimism.
3: But we're only nine months into the Modi government already and an upset in the polls. It seems as if people are thinking that maybe he actually can't deliver.
0: I wouldn't go that far yet. I think people are thinking, OK, he hasn't delivered as much as we would like to see. But if you compare his track record with almost any other previous Indian government, it's already quite remarkable. And I think he's actually playing a long game. He's attempting to try and get through easily manageable reforms first in, in some areas. And then once he's built up some political capital and has a slightly stronger position in the upper house of parliament, he can then push ahead with uh, you know, slightly more radical
3: reforms. Connie, what are your thoughts on India?
4: Well, I think India is a classic case of um, people being optimistic with it all the time and, you know, slow to deliver. And um, it is more advanced than China in the political sense that that they have a democracy. But in terms of economic achievement, uh, it's always bogged down by too many disagreements and, you know, labor issues. So um, I am not about to give um, uh, India... The, the thumbs up immediately. I always have a bit my, of my reservation there.
3: So we're not likely to see uh, India become the new China anytime soon. But, uh, Michael, we've had these figures on um, deflation coming out of China. Uh, is that looking so serious, as Jig Ulrich is saying? Well, I
0: agree very much with what she said, and I think that deflation is a looming problem for China. Um, on one hand, you can say it's caused by oil prices, so lower oil prices, and that's a positive in that it obviously gives people more purchasing power in real terms but on the other hand we know that at the factory gate level in terms of ppi rather than cpi china has been in deflation for around three years already and that's only going to exacerbate those pressures and once you start going into that downwards deflationary spiral if you do get there it's extremely worrying for an economy with a very high level of debt
3: but china is uh, an export environment if we do have lower prices in China, will that not be good for the rest of the world? Keep inflation low in the rest of the world, and eventually pull China out of the out of the slump?
0: I don't think so. In that globally, our big problem is we don't have enough inflation. Um, you, you know, you could say that we do in terms of asset prices, uh, but if we talk in terms of consumer prices everyone's worried about disinflation and or the threat of deflation so the last thing we need to see actually is more of that being exported to everybody else from
4: china and what about the services industry in china and don't you see the prices uh, rising in that respect Uh, for an economy that is now more uh, keen to promote the services industry and the consumer industry
0: Yes, I mean, services generally are, are rising faster, or prices in the services sector are rising faster than the manufacturing sector. And you see that in almost every major economy. That's not a specifically uh, Chinese issue. It's, it's a universal issue. Um, and, yes, you can look at that and say, OK, that, that, there's some upside there. But uh, given the importance of what we call the China price uh, for manufactured goods, if we do see that continue to grind downwards, I think it is still a concern for other economies.
3: Michael, uh, just before you go, I was taken by the fact that you said you were bullish on most, uh, sorry, bearish on, on most economies. Are you uh, in the camp that actually 2015 is actually going to be a bad year?
0: Um, personally, yes. <laughs> and uh, I think 2015, I was saying last year, I thought would be a bad year, and we started off exactly on the right foot to see it be a very bad year. Um, hopefully. Well, markets we are pretty flat
3: through. on the year generally, and Europe's up quite substantially.
0: I'm, I'm trying to differentiate between uh, the real economy and markets.
3: Right. <laughs> Quite right, too. So, the real economy is you're looking at, at being, actually, you're looking at Main Street being on the weak side compared to the markets.
0: Well, I think we've seen that, that dislocation for quite some time. I mean, the U, if we go through country by country, the U.S. is having a, you know, a moderate upturn. Yes, we've had some decent growth data uh, recently, and we've had some better jobs numbers. But I think it's still a very mixed economy there overall, and we haven't had the impact of uh, the, the shale gas sector coming under pressure from lower oil prices really filtering through yet. Europe, obviously, all eyes on what's going on in the Eurogroup today, but I don't think anyone can expect, you know, a a huge turnaround there in the near term. Japan is still struggling and China is slowing down. So those are the four biggest economies in the world, and only one of them is doing, you know, reasonably well.
3: Well, food for thought. Anyway, Michael, I'll let you get back to your morning meeting. That's uh, Michael Every, who's Head of Markets Research for Asia Pacific at Rabobank.
4: In life for free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money.
3: Well, it seems like not a day goes past when the news is full of information about risk to businesses. The hackers are rampant. Twitter's CFO was reported to be hacked last night as his account since started sending spam messages. And closer to home yesterday on Money for Nothing, we had Richard Hudson of Deacons talking about email scams and over the weekend, Legislative Councillor Regina Ip was reported herself to be the victim of an email fraud. Well, just to make us feel a little safer, we've got John Bruce on this morning. John is Head of North Asian Corporate Intelligence and Director of Operations in Macau for the risk management firm Helena Shares Associates. Good morning, John. Good morning, Richard. Good to see you in the studio. Um, now, you're wearing two hats. Let's uh, look at the risk management hack first. What's your general view on this flurry of hacking reports and risks to email?
1: I think it's the world that we live in, Richard. Um, Cyber security is the big thing at the moment. Um, and the, the thing, the nature of the business is that the, the criminals, the, the people that are looking at these things, that they're constantly trying to be one step ahead of the security groups that are trying to thwart them. And I think also in the greater global sense, um, so much of world economies are entirely dependent on the internet and in electronic communications now. So it is the biggest part of our industry um, and people are very aware of the risk. I think you only need to see the amounts of forums, the number of people that are being hired to try and counter this to realise that it is probably the biggest security risk at the moment.
3: But it seems to be extraordinary like companies like Sony, with all of their strength, are still unable to prevent some of these major hacking attacks.
1: I don't think it's extraordinary. I think it, it, it comes down to the fact that, that this is a i think everything's growing um i think business growth has been a priority and security is actually something that comes later people view security and i don't want to sound an advertiser here they view it as a cost rather than actually a business driver and it's a business driver um if you if you're secure if you're seen as secure from as opposed to your rivals you, you'll actually do better in the market um as i say I, you obviously know my age richard i Cyber security and I really, really, really doing the password from password from my computer about it. But I mean, there, are, there are young, really intellectual people we, we have on board, people, and as of all our business rivals, who really are specialising in, in this and it's really a growth industry. They're never going to get ahead of the criminals, they're just going to match them.
3: Um, Let's look at general risk mitigation in terms of, say, I guess when you're in Hong Kong, Macau, North Asia, uh, there are a lot of people coming in all the time, coming into an area where they don't really know the individuals, the companies, the landscape. Uh, what kind of things do you look in terms of easing risk levels for those people?
1: Well, I mean, our company as a whole we provide holistic solutions. M- m- myself, I'm sort of pre-transaction intelligence. That would be my specific area. So, I mean, from the what very, does that mean? Yeah, from the, ve- from the very simple thing of telling my, my colleagues in Las Vegas when I'm overdoing gaming that I don't need to speak Japanese in Hong Kong. That's that's the simplistic side. And then, but honestly, it's just letting people understand the laws, regulations. Particularly the the individuals and the shape of the industry they're moving into, we, we're starting to do more and more market entry reports. I've always done them for specific areas, but you know, as people are moving their research and development facilities to China, there's we're back onto cybersecurity. The, the whole thing becomes um, a, a, you have to have a, a holistic solution. Whereas we'll do our enterprise risk management, um, we'll do the market entry, we'll do due diligence on partners, we'll do vendor screening, but I mean, anyone knows you have to do these things, but but as I say, back to what I do, I'll tell somebody that comes to buy maybe a shares in a major gaming venture who they're getting into bed with, are they are they going to run foul of FCPA or British anti-bribery laws, all the things that big investors have to be sure of. And, and by the way, the other thing that we're trying and we're working very hard, and I think the British government's working very hard, I'm saying from Britain, everyone is, is China outbound investment. I mean, I know that Britain's aiming to have 30 billion, 20 billion a year, by no, 30 billion a year by 2020.
3: So you're, you're, the, these are people moving out of China looking. Are these Chinese clients looking to do investigations on, say, targets in the West? We, or we, are these people in the West looking to do research on. It's, it's both. But what, what,
1: what we would really. I mean, what, where I think in, in our industry where we can really help, although there's a lot of people helping, including the governments, is just doing exactly what we've been doing for 20 years. With people coming to invest into Asia, we'll actually help the major, the there's, there's state-owned enterprises, the remarkably wealthy individuals. Obviously, Lee Cash-Shing's get huge investments in both Germany and the UK. We just help people with business intelligence for, at every level.
3: And Macau, just to finish off there, you mentioned gaming a couple of times, and I know you look at the Macau market very closely. It, it, it's also been in a slump, obviously, with the uh, reduction of the high rollers coming in from China. What's your view looking further out? I, I know
1: that I have to be quite brief here. Um, initially, I've been to saying for ages that, that the damage has been collateral damage because honest, wealthy Chinese haven't been wanting to come and gamble. But I think holistically looking at some of the things that have happened recently, Li Gang actually made a statement and said it's not um, the anti-corruption drive, it's Macau self-adjustment. And if you looked at some of the press in the last two days, all of the major casino operators are saying, oh, yes, we're going to invest in Henquin Island, we're going to build resorts, we're going to build educational facilities, we're going to build infrastructure. I think the Macau government has done what any gaming venture does. It's built the thing that makes the money first. But I think they were being remiss in following on. Henquin Island's there. And I think the, the mainland government has actually said, it's time now. And I think going forward, what has always been the PRC government's aim might be difficult to actually so achieve.
3: It, so what you're basically looking at, uh, is it a move out of, uh, uh, out of Macau, really, to uh, other areas? Yeah, no, move
1: out, but don't get me wrong. This, the gaming fell 2.5% last year. It was up 19% the year before. It's been exponential seen, growth. Seen
3: stunning growth. Yes. Well, John, I really appreciate you coming in. Thank you very much. That's uh, John Bruce, who's head of North Asian Corporate Intelligence at Hill & Associates.
2: Why are you hiding? You think you'll be all right by hiding your drug problem? Prolonged drug abuse causes more harm. Stop putting it off. Seek help now. There is a way as long as you want to quit. Call 186186 or message at 98186186. Many people and organizations can help. Don't hide yourself. Seek help now. Stand firm. Knock drugs out.
3: Well, Hong Kong started life as a port 173 years ago, and shipping is still one of the most important activities with the logistics sector, consisting of something like 23% of Hong Kong's GDP. Well, to give us a rundown on how the industry is faring and what it can tell us about the economy, we have a man who's been in shipping for 40 years. Uh, Michael Burley is Managing Director of the Langton Shipping Group. and Good morning to you, Michael. Good morning, Richard. Uh, Michael, your firm, I believe, offers uh, independent management of ships. Now, I wasn't entirely sure ships needed management in that way. Can you tell us something about that? Well, we provide
2: commercial and technical management and project management and and shipping investment services for ship owners, resource companies, the shipping and finance and investment community. But that essentially means that we run... Uh, ships for third parties. We provide crew technical management and we find business for them if that is what the owner or the investor wants us yeah, And you find the shi-
3: ship as well. Yep. So, yes. so um, uh, you, you do all of that. Well, uh, there are really three elements, key elements of shipping. Dry bulk carriers, which I, I guess carries the, uh, uh, the cargo. Container ships, uh, which is more specialised than tankers. Um, dry bulk, I understand, is actually at historical lows. That's data. correct.
2: Um, the day before yesterday, the, uh, the BDI, which is the Baltic Dry Index, hit um, 554, which uh, basically is as low as it's been since uh, the, the index started in 1985.
3: Well, I, mean, I think uh, in 2008, 554 today, 2008 it was 11,700.
2: That's correct.
3: Why such a precipitous fall? Even in the financial markets, that would be quite impressive
2: well um, the the shipping and the shipping community invested in an awful lot of new ships at that time, and it also came together with the big downturn in two thousand and eight. Things picked up again two thousand and nine two thousand and ten, but then people began to reward more ships again and essentially, we have you know world trade is growing steadily, um, I think it was between three and three and a half percent last year. Um, but there are just too many ships being ordered.
3: So we have trade growing steadily, but these shipping rates are falling precipitously. That's correct. We're, which is probably quite an unusual situation, isn't it's it? V- well, again,
2: it's an overcapacity in the, in the dry bulk market.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, there's a very big, there still remains a very big order book. And the, the market has to uh, um, absorb that.
3: So the shipping and, and logistics industry doesn't really give us a good insight into how the world economy itself is doing. Um, or does it maybe through the volumes you carry?
2: It's, well, one needs to look at the volumes, but the, the, the supply and demand uh, is obviously extremely important. Um, one of the problems uh, the industry faces is that China, as a shipbuilding nation, has come to the fore. Mm. And they have tremendous capacity. So any time... There's a market spike, or people think that uh, demand is picking up. uh, You can very quickly go out and order new ships, which will deliver in two years' time.
3: Very damaging for the China Chinese shipbuilding industry because
2: well, it's gone through quite a bit of rationalisation. I mean, the in the uh, in the 2007-2008 period, there was a proliferation of greenfield yards, and a lot of those have closed down. So you're bringing it back to a more um, efficient industry. Connie.
4: Yes, you're bringing China into the equation, and that was what I wanted to ask you uh, earlier. Um, do you see the significant drop in demand for iron ore and steel because of uh, China's overcapacity and oversupply uh, have anything to do with this uh, demand side of your, your equation, rather th- than just I the think, supply um,
2: side? We were talking earlier. I think the the it's the it's a slowdown in the rate of increase. Um, I mean, China. Last year, um, iron ore imports went up by 14%. Um, Chinese steel um, production is um, up at in the 800 million tons. They, they imported n- just over 900 million tons of iron ore last year.
4: Right, so this uh, question of being overemphasized and, uh, rather than uh, the reality... Yeah, but I
2: think, I mean, things are slowing down in in China. I mean, commodity prices are coming down, so people aren't stocking up, Mm. they're destocking. And, of course, that, you know, that slows down the amount that's being shipped.
3: Michael, the other area you look at are tankers. And, of course, with the oil price uh, collapsing, does that uh, mean uh, that that market could get damaged? Um, Well,
2: we have a slightly different supply and demand situation in the tankers although the oil growth is very isn't, isn't as big as dry bulk growth um, the the market is in a better balance i mean in fact the tanker market has picked up since uh, 2013 and uh, there is a lot of business being to done today in storage for oil
3: uh, so they actually taken, being used as taking an opportunity
2: to um, stock up
3: they're used as static storage, are they?
2: That's correct. There's apparently um, there's, there's something like 40-plus VLCCs. These are very large crude carriers that are being used for storage. At
3: where, the where do they normally sit? Is there a place in the world that they...? Uh,
2: they will be in various strategic parts of the world. near um, yeah, the just refineries, waiting, I guess. Yeah, waiting to unload.
3: And um, uh, it probably shows, I suppose, the benefits of diversification if you're in the shipping industry with these different, uh, uh, different, different kinds of ships.
2: That's, that's correct. I mean, the, the container market um, has gone through a very uh, – container-owning market has gone through a very difficult period. Um, but we, we feel that that's – we hope that that's bottomed and is beginning to pick up a little bit now. Good, Certainly, I hope so. There's about a 6% growth, I think, in uh, container trades last year.
3: Well, Michael, thanks very much for coming in. That's Michael Burley, who's Managing Director of the Langdon, Langdon Shipping Group. Um, just before we go, we have the market news, the markets that are open in Australia – Uh, And Seoul, because Japan's closed today, Australia's just down a touch with the index at 5,736, and Seoul is up about 0.3 at 1,942. Connie, uh, one question I wanted to ask you. You're a classical economist, so I have to ask you this. What are economists doing these days? We have things like... QE, which should be inflationary, but we've got lots of disinflation. Um, We've got all sorts of other elements happening in the economy we don't understand. We've got people not earning as much as they should be. Isn't there time for a new Nobel Prize winner in economics?
4: Uh, That won't be me. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I think... Um, We have to look at the world economy uh, as a whole. The the developed part of the world is deeply in debt. And when you are so debt-loaded, you need to be uh, deleveraged. And so, when you're deleveraging, people refrain from spending too much money. The households that has to be paid down. So the they're paying the loans back,
3: down. and um, basically, there's not as much around uh, to go around.
4: Exactly, the, the the consumers are not that willing to spend. Although Americans are now starting to get a bit better there. And the corporates are not willing to uh, borrow money. I mean, interest rate may come down, but if I don't have a appropriate investment opportunities or business opportunities, okay, I will well, go and get a loan.
3: Connie, we're going to have to go. But well, thanks very much. Uh, it's Connie Bolland of Economic Research Analysis. And uh, just the weather before we go, mainly cloudy, cool in the morning, sunny periods during the day. The temperature at the observatory is currently a cool 14 degrees C and the relative humidity is 78%. Now the news read by Samantha Butler.
0: The new Greek government has won a vote of confidence in Parliament on its plans to renegotiate the terms of the country's international bailout. The vote was called ahead of Wednesday's emergency meeting of European finance ministers, which will consider the Greek government's position. The BBC's Chris Morris was at the Parliament in Athens. to <laughs> The parliamentary debate on the government's radical program of reform ended as it had begun on Sunday, with a defiant speech from the Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras. The bailout program that Germany and others say should remain the basis of international oversight of the Greek economy has, he said, been rejected. We will not ask for an extension. Instead, we're asking for time and space to recover. Anti-terrorism police in Australia have arrested two men who were allegedly planning a public beheading. They're due to appear in court later today. Australia has been on a high state of alert since December when a gunman who claimed to be an Islamic State supporter took 18 people.